and open to Matthew chapter 27. We are, as we journey through with Matthew, coming to the culmination of this journey with Jesus to the cross. It's been a long and detailed journey as we've walked through, and now we come to the, that kind of crucial point at the cross as Jesus comes to die for our sins. Um, some of you know, and some of you maybe are not aware, but uh, after the 1030 gathering last week, I got the news that my dad had had a massive heart attack last week uh, in that morning and had passed away uh, that, that morning. And I found out right after the service, it would be disingenuous of me to teach about death and not, first of all, let you know that. Um, we're, we'll be leaving later this afternoon to go to Ohio where he lived to uh, be a part of those gatherings. But th there's also a sense, and if you've ever lost the second parent, some of you know my mom died a little over two years ago. W when the second parent dies, there's this weird experience of like, what the heck's going on? <laughs> because you're, you're used to somebody taking charge. I, I, I had this conversation with my sister Sunday afternoon and we're both kind of coming to the realization I guess we have to make decisions because we're used to somebody else making decisions. Uh, my dad was a large man, if you ever met him, a large man in all ways, but he had a very large personality. And we were, we were joking this week that even when we knew he was wrong, we did what he said. <laughs> because we're just like, he just had such a big personality. It was like, whatever he said, that's just what you did. That was the way it worked. And so now we're in this, this place where we're navigating. So, so now what do we do? Who makes the decisions? How does that work? And as we go through that, I couldn't help but, studying this passage this week, come back to what the disciples must have felt like. I mean, for me, it, there, I have tons of people in my life who can speak into my life and guide. But these disciples, they, they did what Jesus said. He said, follow me. And so for three years, they had just been doing what he did. Like, Jesus does it, we do it with him. Jesus goes over here, we follow him. Like, literally every decision Jesus made impacted at least those 12 and probably a community larger than that 12. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus is on a cross. And you're saying, well, what the heck? <laughs> now what? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? That's the heart of what Matthew is trying to bring to us. The, the, the sense of, um, I, I'm not sure where we go now. And he wants us as the readers to feel that as much as the disciples did. And so I want to navigate this last section of Matthew 27 with three questions. The, the first question is literally just what, what happened? And then why did that happen? And I want to dig in a bit to what's underneath it. And then the question that the disciples had to be asking. What, what are we waiting for? What's next? Now what? So what happened why did it happen? And what are we waiting for? I'm going to start reading in verse 46 and read through the end of Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, 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 let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we approach this sacred moment in history, would you give us the grace to hear from your spirit? Would you help us to know your heart for us in all that's unfolding in this narrative? And so God, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, open our hearts to hear what we know and maybe what we don't, what we think of and maybe what we wouldn't naturally think of. And God, would you by your spirit speak into our hearts? I pray that you would guide my words, that they would come from your strength and your spirit, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain and that they would bear much fruit in us. And so God, would you grow your truth up in our hearts and lives, that we would bear the fruit that you call us to in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Fleming Rutledge starts her excellent book on the crucifixion with a very simple sentence. She simply says this, Christianity is unique. What she's getting at is in the scope of world religions, there are tons of similarities. But Christianity at its core has a claim that if we're not careful, we can forget is actually anti-religious. 
irreligious. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, Christianity remains a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Here's what Bonhoeffer meant. We worship God because God is powerful. He's powerful, therefore worthy of our worship. God, by the very nature of the title, is in control. He's in control of all things. That's why he's God. God is one to whom we make sacrifices because he is greater than us. God, powerful, in control, sacrificed to, because of those things, a religious person, particularly in first century Judaism, would never have worshipped a crucified man. Jesus crucified is the epitome of powerless. He is out of control, in control of others. He is the sacrifice, not being sacrificed to. Christianity at its core is irreligious, the anti-religion. And that's the heart of Matthew 27. What happened? In Matthew 27. Well, Matthew starts out by telling us from the sixth hour till the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Um, this would have been a, a note to those who understood and had learned the prophets. The prophet Amos had spoken that there would come a day when darkness would hit the land right in the middle of the day. In fact, Amos uh, says it this way. Listen particularly to the end. He, he says, this is verses 9 and 10. On that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Now listen to what he says. I will make it like, like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Like the morning for an only sun, the darkness covers the land. And as the darkness covers the land, Jesus cries out. Theologians call it the cry of dereliction. Uh, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are many who take that and use it to recall Psalm 22. It's the first line, verse 1 of Psalm 22. And it's turned often to represent a, a cry of victory. Because that psalm, although it's all about the, the torture of crucifixion, the tor torture of death, ends with a victorious call that all the nations would come to life because of this death. But the problem is that Matthew, unlike some of the other gospel writers, quotes Jesus in a different way than the Greek reads in the Greek Old Testament, where he, he's moved me to a center point. He's intentionally not quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, the way that they would have heard it, and instead placed me as the focus. Jesus is effectively saying, God, why me? I've been faithful I've done what I'm supposed to do. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is being pushed to the side and he feels it. Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew has said, Father, when he speaks of God. In fact, he taught his disciples the same way. Pray, Matthew chapter 6, our Father in heaven. Jesus, every time he speaks to God, through the gospel, calls him father, except for now. Now he no longer feels like the sun. 
he has been pushed out to the side. My God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned, depending on your translation? We tend to back away from it. I read it and I want to soften it, but we can't. In fact, we, we must not soften it. Dale Bruner, in his commentary, says it this way. He dies here before he dies. This is Jesus' descent into hell. We should simply stand back in silence before this awful verb and wonder what it means. Abandoned, forsaken. Jesus, from eternity, the second person of the Trinity, at one with the Father, abandoned by the Father separated. And the reason we can't back away from it is because it's this moment that makes the sacrifice of Jesus different than a model for us. He is not modeling for us the way that we should live sacrificial lives. He's not modeling for us humility. He's not teaching us how to die. He has become forsaken because we deserve to be forsaken. He is abandoned because the right response to our sin is that God would abandon us. We can't back away from what he's experiencing because it proves that he is not simply a model for us, but a substitute for us. He is the sacrifice for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Matthew records for us a bit of scrambling with a stick and a sponge. And then he records a very simple statement Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew just said that the God of life no longer has life. Like, I, I can't get my head fully around that. Like the one who is the author of life, the one from whom all life comes, has now died. And it's not quite right to say that in death, Jesus has fulfilled the will of the Father, which is often said. It's not that that is untrue. It's just that it's broader than that. This is the will of the Godhead. Jesus himself has willed his sacrificial death, just as the Father, just as the Spirit. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 10 that no one takes his life from him, but he freely gives it away. That's his interpretation of what's just happened. What happened? God has forsaken. The Father and Son have been separate. And the author of life experiences death. That's the weight of what's going on. The question is why? Like what, what's underneath this? What's happening? Well, as soon as Matthew records that he breathed his last, he talks about this uh, series of events that happen. Uh, dead people rising again, an earthquake that shakes the whole area. This Gentile conversion of the centurion who recognizes truly this was the Son of God. But I think the event that we need to dive into, because it's really the typical event, the type that shows us everything else that's going on, is right at the beginning, verse 51 Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's he saying? Well, because he's referencing the top to bottom tear, 
he's first saying, this is the work of God. God has torn this veil, this curtain, from top to bottom. Why? What's happening here? There's, there's a curtain that separates the most holy place from all of the other places within the temple, and it's that curtain that's been torn. What, what's the reasoning? What's, what's happening? Well, there are two parallel reasons. One that if you've spent time in church, you probably immediately come to. The second one we need to spend a little bit more time digging into. First one is this, vitally important. The curtain torn from top to bottom means that you and I can now, in our sinful brokenness, in our lack of perfection, without the holiness that we should contain, enter into the most holy place. So the the way that the Holy of Holies worked was that um, as you went further and further in the temple, you had to be holier and holier. It was more, more and more sacred, more and more set apart. And every step into the temple required more sacrifice, more effort, more holiness. And this place, that center place, the Holy of Holies, was so holy, was so sacred, that the high priest, only the high priest, could go in only one time a year. This was the most sacred place on earth. This was where God dwelt. When the curtain's torn, he says, you can come in. Any of you, all the time, any day of the year, come into the presence of God. Hebrews 